Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. This is the 12th message in a series I have been doing that I've entitled, How God Treats His Children. I should tell you that this is next to the last one. We have one more after this. I have 12 or 13 messages in this series, but basically I'm only making five points. The first is that God blesses his children. He blesses us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. He gives us everything we need to reach spiritual maturity. The second thing he does is he encourages us. He does that through his word. He does that through other believers. And the object is to encourage us to grow spiritually and become more and more like his son. Then he disciplines us. He allows trials to come into our lives. And those trials, again, are to train us to be more like his son. I mentioned along the way that he gets angry. He doesn't discipline out of anger. Hebrews 12 clearly says he disciplines out of love. But when we step out of line, like any good father, it makes him angry. Then I had two other points. I said that I had five. I really have uh, six. The, the, The fourth one is that God awards faithful believers. Those who faithfully serve him are rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I took that fourth or fifth main point, and I expanded it and talked for quite a bit about all the different ways the New Testament talks about uh, the rewards that we get at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, it talks about the judgment seat but he only, it only mentions it by name twice, but it mentions the concept of rewards all over the place. So we talked about the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about the, the simple little word reward. We talked about crowns. We talked about ruling in the kingdom. And then I took a message and talked about the fact that the book of Revelation talks about becoming an overcomer. Instead of being overcome, we become overcomers, and that that gets rewarded when we do. And then there is the whole concept of inheritance, which to really thoroughly understand, you need to go all the way back to the Old Testament and its concept of inheritance. Some get more inheritance than others. All children get some inheritance. They get to go to heaven. They get a glorified body. But those who faithfully serve the Lord get a double inheritance, to use the Old Testament expression. Then I had one other point, and that is faithful believers get rewarded. Unfaithful believers lose reward. 
Matter of fact, that's a very interesting phrase. The Bible uses it several times. It talks about the loss of reward. And as I've looked at those passages, it seems to me that he's not talking about having something and then losing it as much as he is talking about not gaining what you would have done had you been faithful. I chose to express that by saying it's the loss of potential reward. This is what we would have gotten had we been faithful, but when we are not faithful, we lose out on that potential reward. And then I mentioned the fact that the Bible simply talks about being disinherited. Now, are there other negative consequences to the judgment seat of Christ? What I've done so far is to say that there are positive benefits at the judgment seat of Christ. We get rewarded. Those are positive things. And the one specific thing that is mentioned is that we get to rule and reign with the Lord in his kingdom. But what are the downsides? What's the downsides to the judgment seat of Christ? Well, the only thing I've mentioned so far is not gaining a reward that you would have gotten had you been faithful. Are there any other downsides to the judgment seat of Christ? And the answer is yes. It is our reaction to what's going to happen. There are two that I want to mention today. So for starters, will you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, Now little children, abide in him. When he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, there's several things about this verse that need to be examined. In the first place, he says, abide in him. What does it mean? when the Bible says to abide in Christ? And the answer to that is in chapter 3. So turn to chapter 3 and look at verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. This is very important. Verse 28 of chapter 2 says abide in him. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says Abiding means you keep his commandments. Now, what commandments does he have in mind? Uh, well, look at this verse. Uh, now, he who keeps his commandments, I said verse 23, it's verse 24, abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he gives us. Now back up to verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. So, I take from these two verses that he is exhorting us to abide in Christ, not just the Bible, not just truth, but abide in him, which means we're going to be obeying him, and we're going to be trusting him for the ability and the grace and the power to do that. And that means we're going to obey his commandment. And the one commandment that John speaks about more than any other, 
almost exclusively, is the commandment of love. So, 1 John 2.28 says, abide in Christ, keep his commandments. In short, bottom line, just go love one another. Now go back to verse 28 in chapter 2. He says, now little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence. Ah, when the Lord appears, if you've lived a loving life, then you will have confidence at that judgment. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to be apprehensive about. He's done, you've done what he told you to do, and therefore you can be confident. Matter of fact, the Greek word conveys the idea of being bold. You can boldly approach the throne of the judgment seat of Christ, confident that you're in good shape because uh, you've done what he told you to do. Now, let me ask you a question. As I've gone through this series, uh, has anything I've said bothered you? Have you been a little disturbed? I have. You know? How about the fact that uh, every secret's going to be shouted from the housetops? Remember that one? Any of this bother you? Are you, uh, some of you are looking at me like I put you to sleep already. Has, uh, you're afraid to shake your head yes, because that'll indicate you're guilty of something, right? <laughs> All right, I think, I think when you really look at what the Scripture says, there's reason to be apprehensive. I do think there is. All right, this says you can be confident if you've lived a loving life. Now, let me tell you just how strong this really is. Turn to chapter 4 and look at verse 17. He says... Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Look at that verse. Love has been perfected. The idea is love has been matured in us. So for those who've lived a loving life to the point that they are mature in that, it becomes second nature for them. Then he says, we may have boldness, confidence in the day of judgment. Now look at the next verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Did you see what that says? If you live a loving life, if you just go love people, which gets all the way down to giving a cup of water in the name of the Lord, according to Matthew chapter 10, if you just serve and love, then you have nothing to fear at the judgment seat of Christ. Is that good news? I mean, this text specifically says, love cast out fear. And verse 17 says, we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ. As you know, I have uh, been a teacher, and uh, I want you to know that as a student and as a teacher, I detest test. I hate exams. I hate taking them, and I hate giving them. I have been tempted on occasion to say, 
Let me just give you the questions. This is perfect proof that I don't belong in the teaching profession. No self-respecting teacher would ever do that, right? I mean, they always, I've had professors ask questions, and I said, where in the world did you get that question? It was not in any lecture. It was not in anything you told us to read. Where did you get that question? This actually happened. And he said, oh, it's on page, and I forgot the number. And I looked on that page, and it's not on that page. He said, sure it is. It's in the footnote. <laughs> now, that's what professors do. They not only don't give you the questions, they come up with questions you don't even anticipate, even if you've studied the subject. All right. How would you like for me to give you the questions on the final exam? You ready? Maybe I should say, what's it worth? <laughs> I know the answer to the question on the final exam. There are several. I'm going to go into some of those uh, in the last message in this series, which will be next time. But there's one that towers over all the others. And here it is. You ready? I just told you. What is the answer? Love. Just go love one another, and you will have nothing to fear at the judgment seat of Christ. Matter of fact, I want you to put your finger in 1 John. We're coming back. And I want you to turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This is, in my study of the scripture over the years, this is the first time that this truth really hit me. I was studying the book of James, one of the first books I ever studied. And I came to chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? That is a contradiction. Law restricts. This is a law that liberates. It almost sounds like an oxymoron. But he says, this is, we're going to be judged by this law of liberty. So you need to know what that law is. Well, it's obvious as you read James, the law of liberty is the law of love. But look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Did you see that? So, you want to make it past the judgment seat of Christ? Here's what you do. Just go live a loving life and be as merciful as you possibly can to as many people as you possibly can. That is what this book called the New Testament is about. It's what the Bible is about. They ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love God. And you didn't ask, but I'll give you the second one. And it's love your neighbor as yourself. What the Bible is trying to get us to do is just love one another. People reduce religion to a bunch of do's, or worse yet, don'ts, when the Bible is simply trying to get us to love one another. And I'm telling you, if you love one another, if you show mercy, then perfect love casts out fear, and mercy triumphs over judgment. There. I feel good. I gave you the question on the final exam. Now, you don't just have to have the answer to put on the paper. You have to have the reality in your life. But if you do it, 
your pants. Got it? Well, suppose you don't. Have you ever done any unloving things? Have you ever said some unloving things? Have there ever been times when maybe you should have shown a little mercy and you didn't? Then what happens? Well, turn back to 1 John chapter 2, and I will show you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. He says, uh, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I said a moment ago, I want to talk about two negatives at the judgment seat of Christ. This is the first. Folks, if you haven't lived a loving life, if you haven't shown mercy to people, at the judgment seat of Christ, what you have done is going to be evaluated, and I tell you, we are going to be embarrassed. Would you like for me to show a film of everything you've ever said that you shouldn't have said? You say, oh, come on, there is no such thing. Don't, don't count on that. You know they can take an electrobe and stick it in your brain, and you can have memories of, is everything recorded in your brain? Is that possible? Is it possible for the Lord to dig up everything we've ever said? Well, I'm going to tell you, I vote against it. <laughs> I'm not for it. But apparently, as we stand before the Lord, what we've done is going to be evaluated. And frankly, I think we're going to be embarrassed. Matter of fact, the Bible uses the word shame. We're going to feel shamed. That's heavy stuff. Now, there is a passage that talks about being ashamed that particularly intrigues me. I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy. This is a fairly well-known verse that's often misapplied. But turn to 2 Timothy and look at verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. All right. In this context, Paul is talking about being a servant. He's talking about serving the Lord and particularly serving the Lord in the capacity of a teacher, of teaching the Scripture. And so what he exhorts Timothy to do, who is the teacher, is be diligent. Give a lot of effort to this so that you can present yourself approved to God. In other words, when we stand before the Lord, 
We want him to say, well done. I want that approval from the Lord. That, by the way, ought to be the motivation for virtually everything we do. A workman that does not need to be ashamed. So the other alternative is you're either going to be approved or you're going to stand there and everything, even the things you did for the Lord, could be a source of embarrassment. Wow. I know some things I haven't done for the Lord are a source of embarrassment. I never thought about the things I did do for the Lord would be an embarrassment. But here is a worker who's going to be embarrassed because of his work. Wow, what is that talking about? Well, he says in the latter part of the verse, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, he is talking to Timothy, who is a teacher of the word. And he says, look, you want to handle the scripture right because you, don't, you want to be approved of God. You don't want to be embarrassed or ashamed at the way you were handling the Scripture. So make sure you handle the Scripture right. One commentator says, The man who handles the word of truth properly does not change, pervert, manipulate, or distort it. Neither does he use it with the wrong purpose in mind. Another says, This excludes all fanciful and perilous deviations such as those in which the false teachers indulge, and all those strivings about word which distinct, uh, which distinct man's, uh, distract I'm sorry, man's minds and divert them from the substance of the gospel. So he's talking about the way people handle the scripture. Look at verse 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, they will increase the more to ungodliness. Don't, don't start getting into theological disputes that are of no profit. Babblings, he calls them. But the idea here is he's talking about people who handle the word. And he's saying you need to handle the word properly or you're going to not be approved. Worse yet, you're going to be embarrassed. Now, I want to tell you, this verse scares me to death. And I'm serious. I labor. I do what this verse says in an attempt to diligently teach the Scripture because I want to be approved. And I, want to, I don't want to stand before the Lord and say, I told him what that verse meant, but it wasn't what you meant when you wrote it. Now, that's the kind of thing he's talking about. Now, I want to say two things about that. One is this. A lot of preachers are going to be embarrassed. You know how I know that? I listen to them as little as possible, but sometimes. As a matter of fact, in the last couple of years, I've gotten the habit of channel surfing and catching some TV preachers. And the reason I know that some of them are going to be embarrassed is because they contradict one another all the time, and both of them can't be right. One of them is wrong, and one of them is right. One of them is going to be approved. Maybe both will be disapproved. And both of them may be embarrassed. Just listen to what people do with the Scripture. 
The second thing I want to say is this. You don't have to just be a teacher of the word in order to have this problem. He's talking about all workers. Any service for the Lord ought to be done properly with the right motive. It ought to be done in a loving manner, faithful manner. Because frankly, a lot of people who work for the Lord are shoddy workers and produce shoddy work. There ought to be a quality about what we do. And the quality ought to line up with what the Scripture says. Many servants of the Lord are just plain sloppy. Amen? And I think when we stand before the Lord, we're going to be embarrassed at our unfaithfulness and our sloppy work for the Lord. I think there's going to be shame. Now, what I've said in this whole series leads me to say we could go on and on about all the things that we have done and all the things that we have said. Say, how many of those would be approved of the Lord and how many of those things would be a source of embarrassment at the judgment seat of Christ? If you break man's law, you find yourself in court, you can get a good lawyer, especially if you have a lot of money. Or maybe you could uh, present a good case before the judge and get a lesser sentence. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be no place to hide, no opportunity to put a better spin on what we've done, and there will be no attorney to represent us. We will be, to use the book of Hebrews expression, naked before his sight. And I submit to you, in some cases, it's not going to be a pretty sight. When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and he shows me his plans for me, the plan of my life as it might have been, had he had his way, and I see how I blocked him here and checked him there. And I would not yield my will. Shall I see grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief through his love, though he loves me still? Oh, he made me rich, and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace, while my memory runs like a haunted thing down the paths I can't retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. I'll cover my face with my empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. O oh Lord, of the years that are left to me, I yield them to your hand. Make me, make me, mold me to the pattern that you have planned. I think that should be our response as we look at what the Scripture says about our appearance at the judgment seat of Christ. I said there were two things that are perhaps negative at the judgment seat of Christ. I've mentioned one so far, and that is shame. There is a second, and this one gets a little tricky. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now we're going to look at a passage of Scripture and we need to rightly divide the word of truth. This is a case where we're going to need to practice some careful surgery of the Scripture or we will miss the point. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Now when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we need to carefully note what's going on here. In the first place, the point of this passage, and this is very important to note, is that he says, I have not seen such great faith, that's in verse 10, not even in Israel. Jesus marveled at this Gentile centurion who trusted him. So it's not just that the centurion had faith, it's that he had great faith, and there is a difference. James speaks of being rich in faith. All it takes to go to heaven is faith. Jesus died to pay for our sin, arose from the dead, and all we have to do to get to heaven is trust what he did. The Bible calls that a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. And it takes very little faith. It just takes faith to trust that Jesus paid for your sin and you're going to trust him who paid for your sin and not something you do. That's having a little faith. But the Bible speaks of rich faith and great faith. We grow in faith, according to James chapter 2. So that what Jesus is marveling at here is here is the centurion, a Gentile, a Roman, not even a Jew. And he says, Lord, you just speak. You, you, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a military man. I speak and those under me do what I tell them. Well, uh, you can, I, I mean, I believe you can do this. Just talk, just speak. And the Lord says, wow, I've not seen faith like that in all of Israel. That's great faith. Now, after having said that, in verse 10, he says this, I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
Some come to this passage and they say, wow! The expression coming from the east and the west is a reference to who? To whom? Gentiles. Now, Jesus is speaking to the Jews in Capernaum, and, and they wouldn't eat with a Gentile. I mean, they were afraid they'd get contaminated. They might have to eat Gentile food, and that was, some of that was forbidden uh, in the Mosaic Law. They couldn't eat bacon. So they didn't eat breakfast with the Gentile. And so Jesus says, let me tell you, they're going to come from the east and the west and sit down, obviously at a meal, at a banquet, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Now there's something in the scripture called the wedding feast. And apparently at the beginning of the kingdom, there is this banquet. Uh, some have thought that it was a rewards banquet. Now, he's talking about great faith. And he immediately mentions this sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So apparently what he's saying is there's going to be this wedding, I mean, uh, marriage feast, it's called. And at that time, there's going to be some rewards passed out. Now, that's great faith, not just faith, great faith. Now look at verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let me explain that um, we have to determine who are the sons of the kingdom. This is a huge problem. Because virtually all Bible teachers who come to this passage say, well, those are people that are obviously not Christians because they get cast into outer darkness. Now that's not rightly dividing the truth. Because what you have to ask is, what does Jesus mean by sons of the kingdom? Forget the outer darkness for a minute. We'll deal with that in a second. We've got to deal first with who are the sons of the kingdom. Now put your finger in chapter 8 and turn to chapter 13. Jesus tells us who the sons of the kingdom are. We must rightly divide the word of truth. So look at chapter 13 and look at verse 38. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Based on that verse, tell me who are the sons of the kingdom. Are they believers or unbelievers? They're believers, right? Right? They're in clear, they're the opposite of the sons of the wicked one. Who are the sons of the wicked one? Unbelievers. So the sons of the kingdom are believers. Now go back to chapter 8. and Look at verse 13. Uh, verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. And this is our problem. Because outer darkness appears in the Bible several times, and most take it to mean a reference to hell. Now, this cannot be a reference to hell. Because we're talking about the sons of the kingdom, and we've been given eternal life, and not, we will not 
that will never come into judgment, John 5, 24. And there's no fear of us being, if you're a child of God, being cast into hell. That's not possible. So if these are talking about the sons of the kingdom who are believers, it can't possibly be talking about hell when it says outer darkness. Well, if it isn't talking about hell, what's it talking about? By the way, just be, the Bible uses darkness of night. And, you know, there can be other kinds of outer darkness. One Greek scholar that I highly respect translates this, the darkness outside. It seems to be talking about a banquet, and outside of the wedding banquet, there's a darkness. And so some are going to stand outside and not be honored at the banquet. By the way, that's the way it's used in chapter 22, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But right now, let me just say this. I want you to imagine that this uh, auditorium is a banquet hall. All right, you got to swap the pews for tables. Got it? And we're eating. And then instead of a pulpit up here, we're going to have uh, uh, a bench, and we're going to honor people. And some are not going to be honored. So we're going to put them outside of the banquet hall looking in. The darkness outside this banquet is at night, and outside is the darkness and they are looking in. They're not going to participate in what this banquet is all about. And as they look in, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase occurs seven times in the Bible, and it does refer to sometimes people being in hell, but it doesn't have to be excluded to that. It simply means they're going to be crying. Why? Because they're at the banquet, but they're outside of what's going on, and they realize they have just missed out on this banquet. And they're going to cry. Not only that, there's going to be gnashing of teeth. Now, what in the world does that mean? Matter of fact, I ask my dentist, what is gnashing? Who, do people gnash? He said, oh, yeah, all the time. They have things they put in your mouth to keep you from gnashing your teeth. said, Doc, what causes gnashing of teeth? He said, well, one thing that does it is stress. Interesting. It's simply talking about sorrow, weeping, and agony, agony. Matter of fact, the word I would choose to use is grief. Why? Because grief is the reaction to loss. Folks, I think we play with life too much. I think we need to be jerked into some reality. There's a judgment coming. I know this isn't popular or politically correct, but it's Bible. Amen? Amen. And you've seen me in this series point out all the passages where we're going to be judged. And what I'm telling you now is there's going to be shame and profound grief. And I don't look forward to that. 
I think there's going to be some tears that I shed at the judgment seat of Christ. What a sobering thought and motivation for the way you ought to live the rest of your life. Amen? Amen. One more. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. By the way, there are several of these. I'm just choosing two that mention this issue. I want you to look at chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. By the way, who did he call? What does the text say? Who did he call? That puts you to sleep again. Who did he call? Servants. Are these people believers? And he's inviting them to a banquet, and they say, no thanks. I'm not willing. Verse 4, again, he sent out other servants, saying, uh, call those, well, he sent out the servants, but he called those who were invited, and tell them who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calf, and kill all things already. Come to the wedding. These are people he's invited to the wedding, and it's free. It's not going to cost them anything. But verse 5 says, they made light of it and went their way, and one on his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his servant, treated him spitefully, and killed them. And when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his armies, destroy those murderers and burn up their cities. Then he said to the servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So the servants went into the highways and gathered together all those who were found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see it, uh, to see the guest, he saw a man who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how do you come in without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, a couple of observations. One is, this is where we get the idea of darkness outside the banquet. This is a wedding hall, and they are cast in the darkness outside. Another observation, he sends his servants to invite people to the banquet. The servants are his children. They are his servants, and they invite people. It's free to come to this banquet, and they don't come. Matter of fact, there's a little bit of a progression in the verse. First, it just simply says they are not willing to come. Then they... Uh, made light of it and uh, the invitation, and then they actually kill the servants. So he does not have anything else to do with that crowd and says to his servants, 
go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. Wow. Verse 10. So the servants went into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. Now, who are these people? They accepted the invitation. So these people are like the servants. They are believers. Now, he says in verse 11, when the kin came, he found the man that didn't have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, uh, you came without a garment? And he was speechless. So he didn't have on the proper attire. Uh, boy, we live in a day where this doesn't matter, except in a very few places. But there was a day when, if you went someplace, you needed to be dressed appropriately, right? Matter of fact, uh, I've been to places where you couldn't get in unless you had a tie. And uh, that's the kind of thing going on here. The question is, this is obviously a parable, what is the meaning of the garment, the wedding garment? Well, some say that this is the righteousness of Christ, uh, and therefore that they weren't believers. The problem with that is they accepted the invitation. They were at the banquet. So that doesn't quite compute. Another possibility is this. Uh, turn, put your finger in Matthew chapter 22 and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and look at verse 8. Now to her who has granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The Bible speaks of us being clothed in the righteousness of Christ when we trust him. And it also uses the idea of our righteous acts being woven into a garment, and that's what we wear when we appear before the Lord. So back in Matthew chapter 22, I take it that this is all symbolic, of course, and that what is going on is they did not have righteousness. They were the bad part that had collected. And those are the people that he deals with in a minute. So, by the way, uh, I'm not alone in taking this interpretation of this passage. Uh, what does that wedding guard represent? It's usually interpreted as the righteousness of Christ, uh, although it is generally assumed that the wedding garment was supplied by the king. There's nowhere you can prove that, and a number of commentators point that out. So that interpretation has been called a guess of Augustine, unsupported by any evidence. Another commentator said, theologically motivated suggestion, supported by, not supported by any relevant evidence. The guests were responsible for their own clothes. So part of what's going on here is who gave them the banquet, I mean the garment. If it was the king who gave them the garment, perhaps that could represent the righteousness of Christ that the Lord gives us. But in this case, each guest was responsible for his own clothes 
and a number of commentators point that out. This is not something I'm reading into the passage. So the wedding garment was not a special type of garment. It is here nothing more than clean clothes, perfectly white, which were normally worn on special occasions. To come in dirty clothes was an insult to the host, according to one commentator. So rather than the righteousness of Christ, the clean garments represent the righteous acts of the saints. Or to quote one commentator, the righteous character and holy life of the saints. Which is right back to living a loving life. All right, one more verse. Go back to Matthew chapter 22 and look at what he says in verse 13. And the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, which is symbolic of being restricted. Take him away and cast him into the darkness outside, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, we're down to the fact that there's going to be sorrow, that's the tears, and profound grief, that's the gnashing of teeth. That for some who stand before the Lord, there will be great joy. Enter into the joy of the Lord, he says. And for others, there will not be joy. There will be only grief. I think this is one of the soberest messages I've ever spoken on in my entire life. Matter of fact, I dread giving it. I didn't look forward to delivering this one. I think the only thing worse is the time I preached on hell. I think we're so caught up with the affairs of life that we need to be jerked into a little reality and look at some eternal stuff. And the eternal stuff is we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and depending on how we've lived, that's not going to be a Sunday school picnic. All of which is to say, go back to the first point I made. Just go love people. Love cast out the fear. Go show mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is one of the strongest motivations I know for why you should live a godly, loving life. So believers who live a loving life will have nothing to fear at the judgment seat of Christ. But unfaithful believers will be ashamed and will experience great grief. How are we doing? This bother you as much as it bothers me? I hope it does. I hope it does. Just telling you what the book says. I want to end this message by saying this. From a biblical point of view, we are investing our lives. Everything we do, everything we say, we have to give an account for. And in that sense, if you invested in the right things, you will end up with 
riches in heaven. Matter of fact, Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven, riches in heaven. Life is an investment, and we need to invest it wisely. What I'm afraid of is that we've not invested it wisely, that we've bought the devil's message and we live for now. We only live for the moment. We don't live for eternity, and we are wasting our investment. What have you invested in? I read an apocryphal story that said, Dear Art, I know if you would be, I don't know if you would be interested in the following, but I thought that I would mention it to you because it would be, uh, it could be a real sleeper as regarding to making a lot of money with a little investment. A group of us are considering investing in a large cat farm near Bogota, Colombia in South America. It is our desire to start rather small with about one million cats. Each cat averages about 12 kittens per year. Skins can be sold for about 20 cents for the white ones and up to 40 cents for the black ones. This will give us 20 million cat skins per year to sell on an average price of around 32 cents, giving us an annual revenue of approximately $3 million a year. The average is out to a gross profit of $10,000 a day, excluding Sundays and holidays. In Bogota, a good cat skinner can skin about 50 cats per day at an average about $3.15 per day. It could only take 663 men to operate the ranch, so the net profit would be $8,200 per day. The cats would be fed on rats exclusively. Rats multiply four times faster than cats. We anticipate starting a rat ranch adjacent to our cat farm. If we started with one million rats, we would have four rats to feed each cat each day. The rats, in turn, would feed on the carcasses of the cats we skin. We can, you can see that by this, that the business is a clean operation, self-supporting and autonomous throughout. The cats will eat the rats, and the rats will eat the cats, and we get all the skins. Eventually, it is our hope to cross cats with snakes, because the resulting mutation would skin itself twice a year. This would save the cost of labor of skinning, as well as giving us two skins for each cat. If the above program is not of interest to you, I would be the one, the first to say, I understand. When you compare the earthly investments we make of our time, talents, and wealth with the truly valuable investments of eternity, most of us are investing in a joke. Father, jerk us into some spiritual reality. May the Spirit of God impress upon our minds and hearts that we are accountable for everything we say and do. And Father, motivate us to live a loving life, to show mercy, so that we can stand before you approved and hear you say, well done, 
our good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.